0: Morning, everyone. Great to be here. Uh, Please keep 1 John open. We're going to be uh, looking at 1 John uh, together this morning. And uh, let let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful confidence that we can have that we are right with you. And we do ask this morning, please strengthen in each of us that confidence. But we also ask, please warn those who need warning and comfort those who need comforting. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I reckon in this life, there is nothing more wonderful than being absolutely sure that you are right with God. Nothing more wonderful than knowing with a certainty that you are loved by God. Being confident that you will be with the Lord for all eternity. To know where I stand in this world and where I will stand in the world to come. Right with God now, right with God at the judgment, right with God for all eternity. Confidence that I am a Christian. But how do you know you're a Christian? How can I be confident that I'm a Christian? Well, the letter of 1 John is written for just such a purpose. Uh, If I could give the book of 1 John a title, I think the title that I would give the book is Be Confident. Be Confident. Because it's a letter written to a group of Christians who need to be encouraged, to be confident, and it's written for that very purpose, to, among other things, build confidence in God's people. Look with me in chapter 5 at the key reason that John gives for writing this letter. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Please turn there if you haven't. It's good to be in the book together and we'll move around a little bit. Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing this letter to you so that you may know, have absolute confidence that you have eternal life. One John has a letter written by the Apostle John to a group of Christians whose faith had been shaken. A bunch of false teachers had come into their church, had preached a heresy, a group within the church had believed the heresy, left the church, gone out from them, damaging the church. Now if you're left in the church, how are you feeling? Shaken, aren't you? Perhaps questioning, perhaps doubting, perhaps worrying about yourself, am I really right with God? Can I be confident that I'm truly a Christian? Am I secure for all eternity? And so the Apostle John writes to this church to say, be confident, be confident you are a Christian, you are right with God, you are loved by the Lord and will be safe with him for all eternity. And the way that John firstly does this is to get them to look at themselves, to look at their lives and to see in their lives there is evidence that they belong to Jesus. See, how can I be confident I'm a Christian? Well, firstly, by seeing evidence in my life that I belong to Jesus. You see, what the Apostle John does in this letter is to give three tests to take. Three tests designed to show whether someone is a Christian or not. Imagine you're a teacher. Now, a number of you don't need to imagine that. And term is on your mind, I imagine, coming closer. And you've got a class, and in your class there's a bunch of diligent students and there's a bunch of slackers. Again, ringing lots of bells, isn't it? And so you set a test... And the test is designed in such a way that for those diligent students, they're going to pass it easy. No worries. Don't need to do any extra study. It just shows that they have been diligent students all along. And in fact, when they do take the test and they do pass with flying colours, it actually will bolster their confidence, will give them increase, a big thumbs up to them, say, you're doing well, keep going. But to the slackers who are doing no work, it'll sort them out. They won't pass the test. It will illuminate that these people who call themselves students are not functioning as students at all. It will give them the big thumbs down. Very similar to 1 John. Three tests designed to do two things. Firstly, to show that those who had been in the church but had believed the heresy and left the church fail each of the tests and so show that they were never truly believers at all. Thumbs down. But secondly, the test is designed to show that those who remain in the church, remain faithful to the truth, are the ones who pass the test and so can be confident that they are God's children. Big thumbs up. And so John gives the tests to those remaining in the church, not worrying, wondering whether they're going to pass the test. No, no, no. He gives them the test confident they will pass. In fact, he gives them the tests so that when they do pass, they themselves will have a reinforced and bolstered confidence in their salvation. A big thumbs up that they are truly Christians. The three tests John gives are three evidences that someone is a Christian and they're like three legs of a stool. You need them all. If you want to sit confidently on the stool, on the I'm right with God stool, you need all three legs present in your life because a three-legged stool needs all three legs. And so if you see these things in your life, these three things, it should give you confidence. I am right with God. I am loved by God. I belong to God. I'll be right with him for all eternity. And the three tests, the three evidences are belief, obedience, and love. Belief in the truth, obedience to God, love for God's people. Let's look at each of these legs briefly. Firstly, belief in the truth. First test of whether someone is a Christian is whether they believe the truth about Jesus because to step away from the apostolic truth about Jesus that we have in our New Testament is to step away from Jesus himself. Look with me at a couple of passages that contain this test. Continue in verse 5, but have a look at verse five, chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you know someone who's truly a Christian? How do you know someone who has overcome the sinful, rebellious world and will be with God forever? It's only the person that believes Jesus is the Son of God. Look with me, chapter 2, jump back a couple of chapters, chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a person is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. If you get the truth about Jesus wrong, if you deny the man Jesus is the Christ, is the Son, then John says you are the liar and antichrist against Christ you do not have God the Father and you do not have the Son the test of whether someone is truly a Christian is what they believe about Jesus one more chapter 4 verse 2 this is how you can recognize the spirit of God every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God but every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God this is the spirit of the antichrist which you have heard is coming And even now is already in the world. The test of whether someone truly has the spirit of God is what they believe about Jesus. Whether they believe that he has come in the flesh. That God the Son became a human being in order to die and save us. And any spirit that won't acknowledge this is not the spirit of God but is actually the spirit of the Antichrist. A very clear division. You are either with God or against God. You either speak by the spirit or you speak by the spirit of the Antichrist. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. How would you know? By whether you believe the apostolic truth about Jesus. And in all this, John is writing to a particular church in a particular situation to deal with this particular heresy. And we don't know all the details, but you can reconstruct it from some of the things we're hearing. It seems like it's a heresy that was about, that said that Christ only appeared as a human being but didn't actually become one. And so it's a false teaching around the Incarnation. Denying that God the Son became truly human while remaining truly God. And so denying Jesus' atoning death and the need for that, his death for sinners under the wrath of God. number in the church believed and had left after this heresy. And so John writes to the true believers remaining in the church to say, this is the first test of whether someone is truly a Christian. They believe the apostolic truth about Jesus, particularly his incarnation and atonement. You know those people have left? They've left those things behind and don't believe them and show they were never truly part of us. But you, you believe them, be confident. The mark of a true Christian is leg one, they believe the truth about Jesus. So if that leg is in place in your life along with the other two legs... You can sit on the I'm right with God stool, secure and confident. You can be confident you're a Christian. Leg two, obedience to God. Second clear test of whether someone is a Christian is whether they obey God. Now, not perfect obedience, but a clear orientation towards obeying God as their heavenly father. And if someone consistently lives in disobedience to what God wants them to be doing, if Jesus is not really their Lord whom they obey, they show themselves to not be true Christians at all. And again, the group that has left the church is failing this test, no longer living in obedience to Jesus and showing that they were never truly part of the true believers. Whereas the Christians that John is writing to, who have remained faithful to Jesus and continue in obedience, should be confident that they are God's people. Right through the letter, but a couple of passages. Come with me to chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. What's the mark of the person who knows Jesus? They do what he commands. They obey his words. They live like Jesus did. And if someone says they know Jesus but doesn't do what he commands, then John says they're actually a liar and the truth is not in them at all. Chapter 3, verse 4. Come with me there. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. We know that Jesus came and died in order to take away sin once and for all. And in him there is no sin. So if someone continues to live in sin, just unconcernedly doing what is sinful, they show Jesus doesn't live in them. They don't belong to him. They don't know him at all. Jump down to verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. John says, No one born of God will continue to sin and the one who just continues in sin will in fact show that they are not God's child but are the child of the devil. Now, This is not about perfect obedience. This is not about being perfectly sinless. Earlier in the letter, John says, Look, when you do sin, confess your sin so that you might be forgiven. No, no, this is about the core shape of your life. Is my life an obedience-shaped life? The mark of the true Christian is leg two, obedience to God at core. So if I have that leg in place and the other two legs in place, I can sit on the, I'm right with God, stool, secure and confident. I can be confident I'm a Christian. Leg three, love for one another. Third clear test of whether someone is a Christian is whether they have genuine love for other Christians. Practical love. Because if Jesus has laid down his life for me, the ultimate act of love, if I have really believed it, if I really understood it, if I really received it, then I will love others, particularly my brothers and sisters. And if I exhibit no love for my Christian brothers and sisters, it begs the question whether I've actually received and understood the love that God has for me at all. And so John gives this test. You can tell whether someone is truly a Christian by whether they love other Christians. Again, right through the passage, the uh, the book, but a couple of key passages. Chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions are evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear friends, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Very clearly John says again, love for brothers and sisters is not an optional extra. If we don't love one another, it shows that we haven't really been impacted by Jesus' love for us. In fact, it shows that we remain in death. And our love is to be like, verse 16, the Lord Jesus who laid down his life for us, a love where we do practical things for one another, verse 18, not merely words, but actions, truth. Come with me to one more passage. Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not love God because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If we don't love one another, it shows that we haven't really been impacted by Jesus' love for us and shows that we don't really know God at all. Again, this isn't about being perfect in our love for one another all the time. This is about the core shape of your life. Is my life a love for God's people-shaped life? The mark of the true Christian is, leg three, love. And if I look at my life and I see that all three legs are in place, it gives me confidence I can sit upon the stool, I'm right with God, confident I'm a Christian. Three legs, belief, obedience, love. Not perfect, but present and growing. Three legs of the stool designed to give us confidence that we are God's true people. Three evidences that the Holy Spirit is at work in our life. Have you ever had that experience where... um, You wake up in the morning, you go out to uh, nuke something in the microwave and the microwave just doesn't work. There's no clock, there's no nothing happening. Busted. And your spouse says, oh, the kettle's not working either. And you're like, "Ah." And you try the lights and the lights don't work either. And you come to the conclusion, oh, it's a blackout. There's no power coming to the house. The microwave, the toaster, the lights only work because there's power running to them. And if they're all not working, you have to wonder whether they're actually receiving any power at all. Same with the Christian life. If someone is truly connected to God, they will, by the Spirit of God, believe the truth, grow in obedience, grow in love. And if over time there's no evidence of these things, you'd have to wonder whether the person was actually connected to the power at all, was actually connected to God by the Spirit of all, was actually ever a true believer at all. Say, do you like my stool? I think it's helpful but actually left like that it's wrong it's actually wrong if we just left it there then our confidence as Christians ultimately rests upon us and that's a massive problem because if being confident in my salvation rests upon me won't I always be left wondering worrying thankfully our confidence rests upon ultimately not us So let's rebuild the stool as I think it should actually look. And to do that, we need to ask the question again. How can I be confident I'm a Christian? How can I be confident that I'm right with God now and forever as God's beloved child? And the answer is, by knowing that Jesus' death has atoned for all my sin. See, so far as we look through 1 John, it's been very clear there are three grounds for Christian confidence that we exhibit in our lives. Belief, obedience, love. But these three grounds for confidence, while absolutely necessary, are actually additional and inferior grounds for confidence. Are three supporting evidences that we're right with God. There is actually a stronger, deeper, more secure reason for confidence, the foundational basis for Christian confidence. And that is the death of Jesus atoned for all my sin. The death of Jesus is what actually solves my problem and makes me right with God. So that is where my confidence lies. See, there's actually only one leg to the stool. This leg is the central leg, the weight-bearing leg, The pole right in the middle of the stool that is bolted to the seat and cemented into the ground. I don't know if you've ever sat in a bar stool like that. Just cemented into the ground so that it is immovable, it is unshakable. What is it that ultimately gives me confidence that I'm a Christian? What is it that ultimately means I can sit on the I'm right with God stool? So confident that it won't wobble, that it won't move, that it won't move a millimetre. It is the central weight-bearing pole, secure and unshakable, and that leg is the death of Jesus has atoned for all my sin. The leg that our confidence ultimately rests upon is Jesus' death alone for us because it's his death alone that makes us right with God. Not our orthodox belief. Not our faithful obedience, not our sacrificial love, Christ's death alone is the thing that gives us fundamental and ultimate confidence. And our belief, our obedience and love are additional and inferior evidences that I'm right with God, supporting evidences that I'm right with God because they show that what Jesus has done on the cross has worked for me and is changing my life. They're not really legs at all, they're support struts, They bear no weight in saving us. They just give us additional confidence that we are God's people for whom Jesus died because we can see that death taking effect in our life and changing us. Where do I look for my confidence that I'm a Christian? Where do I look for my confidence that I'm right with God? Well, I can look at my life and see these evidences and grow in confidence that I am God's person because look, the Holy Spirit's working in me. But ultimately, I look not at my life, I look not at myself, I look away from me to Jesus and what he has done for me. Ultimately, I look not at my life, but I look away from myself to his atoning death. This is the fundamental reason reason for our confidence. See, what is faith? The very nature of faith is not to look at myself or even to look at faith like it's some sort of thing. Faith is to look away from me to Jesus who has done all to save me. It's to rest my weight upon the stool, knowing that his death has atoned for all my sin and will hold me up. Look with me again at chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In his love, God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that's an important word, the atoning sacrifice. comes up in chapter 2 as well. This means Jesus died in our place as a sacrifice that satisfied the just, righteous anger of God for the wrong that I have done. Do you see the picture of the Bible that God is a God of wrath? Righteous, just, but furious anger. He is so wonderfully just, he is so beautifully good that he does not let the guilty get away unpunished but burns with a righteous indignation and anger against them, the guilty. The big problem is that I am the guilty (laughs) and you're the guilty, we're the guilty. We all, because of our sin and rebellion against God, stand under his fierce anger and God, because he is so good and just, his anger must be satisfied by being poured out upon the guilty. But God is also love, perfect love. And so he desires to save sinners from his just anger. And so in his love he does the only thing possible to save sinners, to save the guilty, the only thing possible being to turn aside his fierce anger from us onto his son in our place. And so Jesus, as a sacrifice, satisfies, absorbs, appeases the just anger of God against us. And so if my faith is in Jesus, there is no more anger left for me. Because it's been poured full strength upon him, God deals with our problem, making us right with Himself. God Himself makes a sacrifice of Himself in His Son. A couple of years ago, um, my son was at an age where um, Marvel movies were just the thing. You know, we just we just watched all the Marvel movies on high repeat. Lots of fun. But I have to say my favourite Marvel movies are The Guardians of the Galaxy. I just think they are by far the best Marvel movies. Anyone with me? Good. <laughs> um, the, the, I haven't seen the third one, so i will see how that is. But the first two I just think are, are, are fantastic. In the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, there's this ragtag bunch of misfits from across the universe, you know, human, alien, mutant raccoon, uh, humanoid tree-like type creature, yeah, thrown together in this group and ultimately they become the guardians, the guardians of the galaxy. And the movie is actually really about how these, this ragtag group of misfits who actually don't like or antagonistic, some hate each other, come to ultimately care for each other and become a family. But right towards the end of the movie, these guardians, the heroes, are fighting the enemy, as they always do. You know, the whole universe is going to be destroyed or something. And so they're fighting the enemy on this spaceship, and it's going badly for them. They're all injured. They've all been copying it. They're lying on the ground. There's nothing they can do. The spaceship is so badly damaged that it's going down. It's going to crash into the ground of the planet that they're near. No way off no hope for them, they're going to be destroyed in a fiery wreckage and they're, they're resigned to their fate. But then one of them, Groot, the tree-like humanoid thing, which looks like, a bit like a human tree, but functions a bit like a tree. It can grow, it can shoot out vines and branches. and Well, it starts to grow, shooting out limbs, shooting out vines, forming around his friends, the guardians, a sphere a sphere of branches and trees from his very own body, a cocoon, and he tethers them into the sphere and he tethers the sphere into the spaceship and he knows, he does it all knowing that when the spaceship goes down and crashes in a fiery wreck, he will be destroyed. But as he's destroyed, his cocoon, he himself will absorb that destruction so that his friends will be saved and live. Now, it's trite but that's an illustration of God's incredible love for us. God in Jesus wraps himself around us like a cocoon. He absorbs his own fiery wrath and anger against us, absorbing it so fully as he is destroyed, we are saved and live. How incredible is the love of God that the ruler of the universe who owes us nothing would come amongst us as a human being, would die a death and in that death absorb his own just judgment against us for our sin so that we could be forgiven and know God as our Father forevermore. And because God's wrath has been atoned for, our sin has been washed clean. Come with me, one more passage, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you ask Jesus for forgiveness, trusting in his death to save you, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive you your sin and he will purify you from all unrighteousness. Total, utter, absolute cleansing once and for all. In 1 John, the fundamental reason for Christian confidence is what Christ alone has done for us. And so the key for us and our Christian confidence is to look not firstly at yourself but to Jesus To look not firstly at your life, but to look firstly at his death for you. His death that atones for all your sin. And only then to look at your life and see whether the Holy Spirit is changing you. Whether there is supporting evidence. When you sit on the I'm right with God stool, the fundamental reason you can sit there with confidence is the central weight-bearing pole of Jesus' death. And the supports give you further increased confidence that you can sit there because they show that you are someone who is right with God and Jesus' death is changing you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the challenge with all of this is getting the right people to hear the right thing. And this is because it's likely there's two groups amongst us. There's those who have a calloused or callousing conscience and there's those who have a tender conscience. And there's probably a range in between. The person with the callous conscience is the one who has lost sensitivity to the state of their soul. Now, I could do this, but I won't. I could say, turn to the person next to you, reach out and take their hand in yours. Gently caress their hand. Rub your hand across their palm. What do you feel? Well, some of you would be like, oh, so soft. What moisturiser do you use? (laughs) Others that would be like, oh, your hand is hard and like gravel, and oh, particularly those calluses. And, and as you touch their hand, the person who owns that hand, the person with the calluses, they wouldn't feel very much where the calluses are, because that's how calluses work. They, they protect us from um, pain, from, from damage, but they also make that area of our skin less sensitive. Now, it's possible to have that with your very conscience your very stance towards God, usually through consistent resistance to his word. And the person with the callous conscience is the person who hears the warnings of the Bible but thinks nothing of them, who hears the tests of one John but is just not sensitive to the fact that they could potentially be someone who is failing one or two or all of them. The person with a callous conscience is very quick to run to that central weight-bearing leg of Jesus' death. I'm good with God. Jesus died for me. She'll be right. But to do it in such a way that they're virtually blind to the three other struts. Very little concern about whether they believe the truth, obey God, or whether they love their brothers and sisters. Have stopped paying attention to whether there's any fruit in their Christian life. And so they can feel very confident that they are okay with God. But the outside observer looks at their life and says, Dude... I just don't think you should be that confident. I don't see any evidence that would convict you of being a Christian at all. And so what does the person with the callous conscience need? Warning. They need to be told, pay careful attention to the three outer struts. Pay careful attention to the test and see whether you're failing so you can repent. Now, I'm not going to do this, but I could say, okay, now turn again to the person next to you and this time just reach out, reach out, take your finger and gently stroke the surface of their eye. <laughs> the, the, the person with the tender conscience is more like the surface of the eye just so sensitive to any speck that goes in super sensitive to their flaws their failings the state of their soul and so the person with the tender conscience often feels very anxious about their salvation very anxious about whether they are too sinful not because they're more sinful than the person who has the callous conscience. In fact, they're far more godly. The person with the tender conscience tends to look at the three support struts but tends to be blind to that central leg. Do I really believe? Do I really obey enough? Do I really sacrifice and love enough? Am I really a Christian? Could God forgive me? And they feel upon their back a heavy burden for all the ways in which they've failed. And so it can be fixated on those three struts, to the extent they lose sight of the central foundational leg that bolts them to the ground, the immovable rock that is Christ's death to atone for our sin. And while they may feel very anxious about whether they're a Christian or not, the outsider looks at their life and thinks, what are you worried about? You of all people should be confident. Look at the fruit in your life. And the very fact that you are so concerned shows that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, that you are a true believer. What does the person with the tender conscience need? Comforting. They need to be told, pay careful attention to that central foundational leg, to the objective reality that Christ's death has atoned for all your sin and made you right with God now and for all eternity. And also to be helped to see in your life there is wonderful fruit, not the least the fact that you are so concerned about your relationship with God. So can I briefly speak to each group in turn? Firstly, to those with a calloused or callousing conscience. And the problem is, if it's you, you probably won't think it's you. See, if you're quick to think, I'm that person. I'm the person with the callous conscience. I need to be warned. It's probably not you at all. (laughs) You're the person with the tender conscience. It's probably the person who sits there thinking, not me. Don't know who it is, but I know it's not me. It's probably you. So if you have any sense, I don't need these warnings, please pay careful attention right now. If you're confident you're a Christian, but you are living in unrepentant sin... There's things you're doing that you know God does not want you to be doing but you just do not care and you just keep doing them and you're not asking him for forgiveness and you're not asking him for change. Be warned. If you're confident you're a Christian but you've got all sorts of problems and difficulties and arguments with other people in church and you won't forgive little things that people do against you and there isn't care and compassion and sympathy and service and giving and you're purely self-focused, Be warned. If you're confident you're a Christian but there are things about the Gospel you just in the heart of hearts really don't believe. Don't really believe that you're a bad person who needs God's forgiveness. Don't really believe that there is absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. Don't really believe that God is a just judge who actually sends people to hell. Don't really believe that Jesus died as a sacrifice under the judgment of God in order to save you. Be warned. So if you're confident you're a Christian, but all the evidence just points to the contrary, you're failing the tests of John. 1 John, maybe you shouldn't be so confident. And so can I ask you, come to Jesus, ask for his forgiveness, turn from your sin, ask him for the power to change, and you'll be cleansed of all your sin. But whatever you do, don't go on thinking, oh, I'm okay with God. I'll be right at the judgment. If there's no evidence that demonstrates that you are a believer... Now can I speak to those with a tender conscience? And if you have a tender conscience, you probably don't think you have a tender conscience. You're just very worried about whether you believe truly enough and obey fully enough and love sacrificially enough. And if that's you, please listen. Jesus' death is atoned for all your sin. There is no more anger left for you and never will be. Every sin, past, present, future is completely dealt with, cleansed, washed clean by the death of Jesus. How can I know, how do you know you're a Christian? How can you have confidence that you're right with God? Don't look at yourself, but look to him first. At his death that has satisfied all God's anger, that has cleansed you from all your sin forevermore. In my years of Christian ministry, I've talked to um, many, many people like this. Many, many people who are very anxious about their salvation and whether they're right with God. Worried whether they truly believe, whether they adequately obey, whether they really love. Worried about whether their their faith in Jesus is genuine. Worried about whether God could truly forgive them. Worried about whether God could truly forgive them this time because it's too bad or because it's too much or because it's... And I usually say to them, do you know what? The person who is not a believer is not the slightest bit worried about these things. The person with an unregenerate heart doesn't care about obeying God, doesn't give a stuff about whether they're loving God's people, isn't concerned about whether they believe the truth. In fact, doesn't even really care whether they're right with God. The very fact that you are worried about these things is evidence of the Spirit of God working within you. And so can I encourage you, look to Jesus' death and not yourself. Look not even to your faith. Faith is to look away to the one who has done it all for you and let him be your unshakable confidence. Do you remember um, Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, in the temple? You know, the, the, the Pharisee comes there totally confident that he's all good, that he's all right with God because of how he's lived. But the tax collector, you know, he stands at a distance. He won't even look up. He, he, he bangs on his chest and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, if that's you, if you find yourself crying out in your heart, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You are in the best company. That is what God's people, all God's people cry out in their heart. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The punchline of Jesus' parable is, this man went home right with God. This is the one who went home right with God now and for all eternity. And so, same for you, if that's your attitude towards God. Let me... um, Finish with a little fictional story. Uh, I nicked it from another preacher and, and I've adjusted it to make it better. <laughs> <laughs> it's about one of the criminals who... Uh, oh, you'll probably hear this. Anyway, It's about one of the criminals who died on the cross uh, next to Jesus. And do you remember the criminal who cried out, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now here's the fictional bit. Straight after this death the man arrives at the pearly gates, fictional. And there's an angel there standing there with a big scroll and he looks at the scroll and he looks at the man and he says, "What are you doing here?" And The man says, "I don't know." I said, "What do you mean you don't know why you're here?" "I I I don't know." <clears throat> Let me get my supervisor. And so the angel goes away and he gets his supervisor. The supervising angel comes back and says, Okay, okay, well, I have a number of questions for you. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? I've never heard of it in my life. Hmm. Have you been baptized? Well, every once in a while I get a bit smelly and I take a bath. Hmm. Which church did you attend? Church. Did you love other Christians? I never met another Christian. Did you live obeying Jesus? Well, I spoke to him, I died, I didn't get heaps of an opportunity. Then on what basis are you here? The man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. The one who looks to Jesus on the cross is the one who stands free from the anger of God. Pure, clean, right with God forever. Jesus has done it all. This is our confidence. In a moment, we're going to sing about the incredible confidence that we have because of what Jesus has done. These are some of the words we're going to sing. The band's going to come up now, but as they come up, why don't you look at these words, have a think about them. I'll pray, and then we'll sing these together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and that his death has atoned for all our sin. Please fill us with all joy and peace and confidence in this. And please work in us the fruit of salvation, that we would hold fast to the truth, that we would grow in obedience to Jesus, that we would uh, love God's people and more and more. And we ask that this fruit in our lives would give us additional confidence. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.